You are listening to Books Are My People, a podcast for book lovers with bookish news, recommendations, and ruminations on living a literary life in Los Angeles. This is episode 55. Summer is chugging along. We're still in Los Angeles, but leaving town soon for I don't know how long. First up is hockey camp in Lake Tahoe, and then we may extend the trip and hit the road without any real plan. So in case of prolonged travel, I will be recording the next episode of Books Are My People ahead of time. My oldest son is enjoying his summer job as a camp counselor, and my youngest just booked his first voiceover gig. My sister is writing a kid's podcast, and they've hired him to be one of the kids on the show for a demo they're recording. So he is looking forward to that experience. And it was my dad's birthday yesterday, so I know he'll be listening to this eventually, but I wanted to wish him a very happy birthday. I am thrilled to have guest author Rachel Donahue here, but first, it's time for some bookish news. Harvey Fierstein has donated $2.5 million to libraries. We love him. The writer and performer's gift will help create a new theater lab at the library's Lincoln Center campus, and that will be used as an educational space where students and the general public can attend programs, but also it will be an archival space for all of Lincoln Center's collection of photos and recordings and set models and costumes so that there remains this catalog on display of all of the wonderful shows that have taken place at Lincoln Center. For those of you in Lake County, Florida listening, the next news story is for you. A program called Tales and Tales is moving through Lake County's public libraries. It involves an animal shelter's mobile adoption truck that visits various libraries with the hopes of bringing readers together with adoptable animals. I wonder what the statistics are between pet lovers and book lovers. I feel like the correlation is pretty strong. For those of you living in the area, I will leave a link to the adoption trucks schedule as well as the animals available for adoption in the show notes, or you can visit booksaremypeople.com and click on episode 55. Maggie O'Farrell's historical fiction novel, Hamnet, will be turned into a movie. I reviewed this fantastic novel on episode 33. The novel follows Agnes Hathaway, Shakespeare's wife, who is known in the book as Anne Hathaway. And wouldn't it be funny if they cast Anne Hathaway to star as Anne Hathaway? And it looks at the death of their son, Hamnet, who inspired the play Hamlet. The novel won both the Women's Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award for Fiction. Today's episode is brought to you by Omeo. Omeo is a travel booking platform that makes planning a journey in Europe and North America effortless. Just enter your travel details and Omeo will magically give you all the train, bus, flight, and ferry options for your journey. It's never been simpler to book your first real vacation for 2021. Best of all, using Omeo saves you time and money. That's a win-win in our books. Omeo wants to help you leave your house this summer by offering 5% off your next booking. Just head to omeo.com and use the code OMIO5 at checkout. Valid until July 31st for new users on all modes of transport. It's just the pick-me-up 2021 needs. Omeo. Plan, book, and love the journey. Terms and conditions apply. 
Our next guest, author Rachel Donahue, is calling all the way from Ireland. She lives in Dublin, where she works in communication and media relations. In 2017, she won the Hennessy New Irish Writer of the Year Award for her short fiction. The Temple House Vanishing is her first novel. So hello, Rachel. How are you? Hi, Jen. How are you? Thank you so much for having me on. I'm doing great. I was in Dublin in the winter of 1996, and I was there on sort of a mecca to see all things James Joyce related. And I think I was the coldest I'd ever been in my life. So <laughs> I would I would like to go back sometime during the spring when everything is verdant and beautiful. Oh, please do. That's wonderful you were here. That must have been a big trip. Yeah. How is it there now? green and beautiful um it's lovely yeah it's lovely it's not raining and it's not misty and it, the sun is shining so we're, we're doing good well we're so happy to have you and in your words can you tell us what the temple house vanishing is about yes i'd love to the um temple house vanishing is a story set in the early 1990s in ireland uh, primarily and we follow a student called Louisa who um, joins, wins a scholarship to um, an elite but somewhat decrepit um, Catholic boarding school. And there she becomes or forms, I suppose, quite a close friendship or attachment with another student called Victoria. And they both uh, come under the influence of their art teacher, Mr. Lavelle. And in a parallel narrative, looking back 25 years later, we discover that Louisa and Mr. Lavelle went missing from the school at some point. And a journalist is, I suppose, on the case, attempting to piece together the story of what happened all those years earlier. And I was sent this book and gobbled it up in one sitting. It was just so fantastic and immersive. And I loved it so much. And then I reached out to Rachel and was so excited that you could come on the show. So that's fantastic. Where did the idea for this novel come from? Well, interestingly, you mentioned just when you were um, reading out the the, the biog section there, I, I, I've been writing short stories for about 10 or 12 years. Um, really, uh, you know, in my spare time of a, of a Sunday morning, you know, between work and children and all the rest. And anyway, one of the stories had in the background of it um, very much sort of, you know, a very, very small piece in it. it. There was a reference to a student in a school, a kind of a strange school that had gone missing. And I finished the short story. I put it away, as I always do, for a couple of months. And then when I came back to it, worked on the short story. But this this kind of student in this school was in my head, I think. Um, and they, they wouldn't really fully leave me alone. So it was at that point that I thought, well, maybe I'll try. I'll try and write about this person. And I had a very clear image of them arriving at this school, this lonely red brick school. I could kind of feel the cold air and the wind off the sea and the nuns standing at the door and the other students. So I had a very clear setting and mood at the beginning. But but the actual sort of hint of the idea did come through short fiction, you know, a short story I had I had finished, 
which um, hadn't happened before. But it, it just I seem to need to, to talk more about the student and, and discover more about her. So in the novel, you have two different point of views, which represent two different timelines. You have young Louisa, as you mentioned, at boarding school. And then you have the journalist who's trying to uncover Louisa's disappearance. And that's 25 years later. I'm curious how you landed on these two different timelines, these two different points of view. Yeah, I um it's always, you know, I the first voice very much was Louisa. You know, I could I, I could really, as I said, I had a very clear image of her. She was sort of already a little bit alive. And I started writing from her perspective, some of the early chapters. But then I suppose I, I, I kind of felt and in many ways, I feel I was a bit like the journalist trying to discover what was going on. You know, I felt I needed another perspective um, and, you know, to some degree as the writer, you are kind of the investigator trying to work out what's going on. And so I felt um, I needed that. But I also I found writing some of the, the the school scenes quite intense. As you mentioned, it's quite atmospheric. It's, you know, it, it, it has sort of religious overtones as well in terms of the Catholic school. And it was a very kind of almost um you know, just this very full on world. And I found it quite a relief to some degree to have another voice um, that was was telling the story as well. You know, I felt I needed to, to, to have that other slightly more distant, slightly more modern perspective. And in many ways, I felt, as I say, I felt quite like the journalist trying to, to, to work my way through this story. The novel could be described as a coming of age story. How did your own upbringing inform your interest in becoming a writer? Yeah, I mean, I, as I said, I was writing seriously, I suppose, for the last 10 or 12 years. And um, before that, you know, I... I think I was afraid to write. Um, I don't know if you feel had any of these kind of internal barriers, but I think I was I was too I wasn't confident enough to sit down and sort of admit to myself that this is what I wanted to do. But going way back, you know, as a child, I had a big obsession with words, with spelling, with the meaning of words. Um, and I would have written a lot of stories as a child um, and into my teens. And then obviously that, I think for us, for lots of people that kind of drifted away, but it never went away fully. You know, I always had a sort of, there was always a sense of, you know, I think I'm a big observer. I think a lot of writers are. I tend to be outside of situations, sometimes always looking, which is both not a very good thing, but also, but I think it's just sometimes about who you are. So I felt I was always somebody watching, observing, listening. I find I find people endlessly fascinating and, you know, I'm so curious about them. Um, so that it was always there, but I didn't have the confidence to really say to myself, this is something I need to explore until I was in my 30s, really. And, and I'd already had some my, my two children. And my final question for you is, what are you working on now? Well, I actually, I am just starting my third book at the moment. I've just published my second book um, in the UK, Ireland and Australia and New Zealand. So that's just come out this summer. It's called The Beauty of Impossible Things. Yeah, so it's it's kind of set in a seaside town, a sort of strange hot summer in a seaside town. So I, I worked a lot on that last year through lockdown. I wrote a huge amount last year and... Then for the first half of this year, I've kind of taken a bit of a break from writing and I've been just, you know, kind of for me, I don't know about yourself. I have a lot of time where I need to think before I write, you know, I have a build up the strength again, but also to kind of get ready. So I've just started now over the summer um, hopefully what will be book three, but we'll see it's early days. <laughs> well, and now onto the books. So Rachel, you're going to start us off. What is your first pick? My first pick is a book that I'm 
I don't know if people will have heard of. I th- I hope they have. Um, and if not, that they might consider checking it out after this. It's um, a book called Embers, which was written, that's E-M-B-E-R-S, written in 1942 by a Hungarian writer whose name I'm sure I'm pronouncing incorrectly, Sandor Marai. Um, he was one of the leading lights of um, Hungarian sort of literary circles in the 1930s. Um, but he was profoundly anti-fascist and um, having survived World War Two, he was then persecuted by communists post the war. So this drove him to leave the country. So he has a very interesting story in himself. He left Hungary in 1948 and actually went to California, as far as I know, and died in um, San Diego in 1989. So he's a very, very um kind of classic, beautiful, um, evocative writer. The story itself was only translated into English in 2001 and was reissued by Penguin, I think, at that time. And it focuses on a retired army general, an aristocratic man called Henrik, who has lived for many years as a recluse in his castle in a Hungarian forest, waiting for the return of his best friend, a man called Conrad, who he has not seen for 41 years. So it's hugely atmospheric setting. And um, over the course of the book, we kind of uncover their friendship back in military school, where despite quite different backgrounds, um, they're very close until they have a falling out. And this falling out is the reason they haven't seen each other for 40 years. And when the novel begins, um, Heinrich has just heard that Conrad is actually coming to visit. So the story sort of starts you there where he's waiting and getting the castle ready for this long lost guest and visitor. And then it traces back to their friendship. What happened? What was what was the falling out about? And then Conrad arrives for dinner. And then a lot of the book takes place literally in this uh, one room with this very intense sort of war of words um, and exploration of of their friendship and what happened and why it happened. So it, it covers everything from sort of loyalty to, you know, the self to, you know, the loss of empire. You get the sense of this aristocratic world that disappeared. Um, and it's just if, if anybody likes very beautiful writing, um, a lot of atmosphere being taken to another world, as I do as a reader, um, you really, really feel that you're there in these castle walls um, and really uncovering this kind of friendship and, and finding out what what happens. So if you're if you're mood atmosphere, almost like a kind of fairy tale, I think I think Embers might be worth checking out by Sandor Marai. Thank you. That sounds fascinating. And I feel like that scene you're describing at the dinner table talking about all these subjects almost sounds like a scene out of a play or something. So my first pick this week is Love and Fury, a novel of Mary Wollstonecraft by Samantha Silva. And this came out in May of this year. I thought this was a good fit to talk about this book today because Mary Wollstone Shelley is of course, the queen of Gothic. She famously wrote a little novel called Frankenstein, and she was married to the romantic poet and philosopher Percy by Shelley. But this novel focuses on Mary Wollstonecraft's Shelley's mother, Mary Wollstonecraft. I will hereon refer to the mom as Mary W and the daughter as Mary S. So aside from being famous for being known in history for being Mary S's mother, Mary W is known by many as the first feminist penning the famous Vindication of the Rights of Women. 
The novel begins with Mary about to give birth to her daughter, Mary S., and this book is told in alternating chapters between Mary W. and the midwife who's helping her through the birth and then stays on afterwards. When we are in Mary W.'s chapters, she is recounting her life to her baby daughter. We learn that she had a difficult childhood with an alcoholic father, and we can see how the seeds of feminism were planted, perhaps as a response to the treatment of women both inside her home and around her. Mary W. is a fascinating historical figure who was a true intellectual at heart, always seeking out an education for herself and then helping other young girls to do the same. Life was pretty rough during the second half of the 1700s, and I loved all of the historical elements in the pages of this book. It's a book about feminism, motherhood, and birthing practices. Fans of either Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley or her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, and fans of historical fiction will enjoy this book. And as an aside, I watched a movie last year called Mary Shelley starring Elle Fanning that I remember really enjoying. So you can maybe read the book and then watch this movie. And again, that's Love and Fury, a novel of Mary Wollstonecraft by Samantha Silva. Rachel, what is your second pick? Okay, that sounds fantastic, Jennifer. <laughs> it was great to read that. It sounds brilliant. My second book is um, one I'm sure some of your listeners would know well, or either from the film. It's The Virgin Suicides by Jeffrey Eugenides. Um, I read this book a long time ago and loved it. I loved the film by Sofia Coppola as well. And I actually reread it again this year um, and I wasn't sure opening it whether I would like it as much, but I really, really did. Um, it's uh, I suppose we're basically in the space of a suburb in America where we have some essentially we're watching the unfolding tragedy of the mysterious Lisbon sisters who one by one will take their own lives. So it's, it follows this, um, we're watching this, this family through the eyes of some of the neighborhood boys, so to speak. Um, and it's just a really, really beautifully written book, very dreamy, very ethereal. And what's interesting is that we really are in the immersed in a, in the obsessive male teenage gaze. And I suppose to some degree, that's what I was nervous about going back to thinking, will I how will I find this? But what I what I saw reading at this time was just the genius of the writing in terms of how, you know, objectified the girls are, how we don't really get any sense of their, you know, inner lives because we're trapped in this male gaze. And it's just a really interesting, um, you know, exploration of that and of the limits that are put on um you know, both, you know, boys and girls in terms of that that period of time in their lives where there's sort of this gulf of misunderstanding between them and, you know, how the obsession can turn into something else. And it's just a story of lost innocence, really, both of the sisters themselves who come to this tragic end, but also the boys who are now men telling the story and who once watched them, you know, as younger boys. I just felt it's actually a very relevant book still, um, 25, 26, 27 years later. Um, and again, just absolutely beautifully, um, beautifully written and 
really just captures this this strange odd mood of of teenage life and the virgin suicides by jeffrey eugenides that's a book that i have gone back to multiple times because it's just so well written and i think if i'm remembering correctly it's written in the first person plural without using the voice of the we which is so unusual and actually really hard to pull off so the fact that he does it is just so impressive to me. They're kind of like a chorus of voices. It's so fascinating. It's just so well done, but also so moving. You know, it's really such a moving book. So my last pick is in a completely different wheelhouse uh, from the previous one or from anything that we're talking about today. And it's called Mother for Dinner by Shalom Oslander. And it came out last September and I've been holding on to it waiting for the right moment to read it. And that finally came last week. So this is a book specifically for my listeners who like more of the offbeat dark comedy novels, which I realize is not for everyone. And the premise that I'm about to tell you will either intrigue you or completely repel you and either response is totally fine. So this novel centers around Seventh Seltzer, who is aptly named because he was the seventh born child. Uh, Unsurprising, the first is named first, the second is named second, and so on, all the way to 12. The siblings have noticed some strange behavior from their mother lately. She's been eating an inordinate amount of fast food and gaining weight by the day. At her deathbed, she whispers in Seventh's ear, two words that he knew she would someday say, but he's been dreading hearing these words his whole life. And these two words are, eat me, because the Seltzers represent a very small community of cannibalists living in America. And as per their tradition, she expects her children to partake in the ritual eating of the dead within the first 24 hours of passing. So are you still with me, listeners? The premise is obviously satire, but really successful satire. And it throws into sharp focus longstanding customs and traditions that people have. The book also delves into the history of this faux community of cannibalism, for which Oslander has done a tremendous job writing this backstory, including how the protagonist's parents immigrated into the U.S., and it's a novel about identity and family and ritual, and I think some of you will really enjoy it. And again, that is Mother for Dinner by Shalom Oslander. Rachel, what's your final pick? That sounds amazing, that as well. I need to check that out. Um, My final pick is, I suppose, a complete classic. Um, It is The Age of Innocence by Edith Wharton, which I also reread this year in a sort of um, just desire to sink into another world. Um, Set in the Gilded Age in New York, though written in, I think, about 1920 by Edith Wharton, but it's looking back to a New York of the 1860s, 1870s. It tells the story of the soon-to-be-married Newland Archer, who would be a very kind of highborn, you know, uh, sort of society type within um, New York at the time. Uh, He's due to get married to Mae Welland, also a very well-connected young woman. And essentially, this um, engagement is about to take place, but is thrown into some level of turmoil by the arrival of 
a Countess Olenska, who is, I think, a relative of May's, who returns to New York from Europe, where she has been involved in a sort of scandalous divorce. Um, and as with anything with Edith Wharton, I love how the House of Mirth as well. The, the book really just is a depiction of high society at a particular moment in time. Um, at how the individual and their desires can be essentially, I suppose, crushed under the oppressiveness of, um, you know, rules and doctrine and mores in a certain society. Um, so on, on one level, it's operating, you know, as as a sort of just just a major critique of, of vanity and the ridiculousness and of how people's lives get lost within that. Um, but I do find the character of Newland Archer himself, just the way she writes it, um, is just so, you know, he's so unself-aware to some extent. He's, you know, a very privileged man. Yet we do feel sorry for him, but, 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 and have sympathy for him and empathy. But just the way she does it, we, we see both sides of him. We can feel sorry for him, but we can also see that he is just such a lost soul and is lost within this structure that he thinks he understands and that he thinks he's different from, but he's actually not. And it's just, it's sort of devastating in its um, in its portrayal of, as I say, lost lives. But also we have this understanding of why lives were lost in terms of people not being able to break out and not being able to fully be themselves. And I just I find Edith Warden herself just so interesting, considering she, you know, she herself was very much part of a an elite within New York. Um, yet she was so outside of it and, you know, purposely made herself in terms of her traveling. She was in France for a lot of her life. She she remained this very keen observer of her home city um, and probably one of its one of the best chroniclers, I think, of New York, really. Edith Wharton, The Age of Innocence. Well, you're making me want to go back and read that one. I love that novel when I read it, but I read it in my 20s and I think I would have a very different perspective in my 40s. Absolutely, Jennifer. I was the same. I read it in my 20s, really liked it, came back to it this year and was literally blown, blown away. I read it in, I think, over two days. We have covered the gamut of book tastes and styles on this episode today. Thank you so much for visiting us, Rachel. Thank you, Jennifer. It was an absolute delight to be here with you. Thank you so much. And where can people find you on social media? I'm on Instagram at, at Rachel Lucy Donahue. So that is all from us. Next up for me is a novel called The Woman in the Purple Skirt by Natsuko Imamura. Rachel, what are you going to read next? What am I going to read next? I'm um I'm because I'm writing some fiction at the moment. I'm I'm, I'm not reading fiction. So I've just got Zadie Smith's um, Feel Free series of essays. So I'm about to dive into that this weekend. All of the books mentioned are linked up in the show notes of the podcast, or you can find them at booksaremypeople.com. Purchasing books through my links is an easy and great way to support the show. And I hope everyone gets a chance to purchase The Temple House Vanishing by Rachel Donahue. And I hope you all have a wonderfully bookish week.